This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective. Liquid Amber provides custom and cosmetic tattoos alongside a curated art gallery dedicated to celebrating local artists. And their monthly art socials are becoming a can't-miss event in the Vancouver cultural scene. Discover more at liquidambertattoo.com. And stay tuned to learn more about Liquid Amber's call for submissions for a film industry art showcase coming in 2020. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Furminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, we welcome Rachel Langer to the YVR screen scene hot seat. The first thing, oh, sorry, hi, that's so rude. You said hi, and I'm like, okay, I have, I have a couple of things that I want our listeners to know about you. So listeners, listen up. The first thing I want you to know about Rachel Langer is that she's all about words, specifically twisting and turning words like a centuries-old magician to bring characters to life and then to throw them through the ringer. Rachel is a Leo Award-winning screenwriter. Her growing list of credits includes episodic fare like This Life, Ghost Wars, The Bletchley Circle San Francisco, The Order, and Transplant, as well as short films directed by her partner in life and creativity, Derek Langer. That last name sounds a little familiar (laughs) to people who've been listening for 20 seconds. Her storytelling crosses genres and platforms and wherever she happens to be writing. She infuses the characters with undeniable energy and nuance and so many flaws. In other words, Rachel Langer writes, must see TV. The second thing I want you to know about Rachel Langer is that she's leveraged her position in the film and television community to draw attention to the pain and stigma of endometriosis. Rachel first opened up about her long health battle in a widely circulated essay entitled Three Surgeries, Fiery Pain, Dismissive Docs, My Life with Endometriosis that ran in Chatelaine and Medium. And we have spoken on this issue Several times. We have, I think yeah. in one of them, I, I used the words that you gave me, lady parts. So we've spoken about lady parts yeah. a few times already. That's right. But by choosing to talk about it, Rachel is quite literally saving lives while also changing the culture in writers' rooms and in what we see on screen. So today, we're going to talk about storytelling. We're going to talk about one of my favorite places that... Sh- continually shrouded in mystery, writer's rooms. And we're going to talk about whatever Rachel wants to talk about because she's always surprising me and moving me with her words. So Rachel Langer, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thanks for having me. That's a lot to live up to. But it's all true. I like to cut so much stuff. (laughs) Well, what is your, I love to, I I mean, I I always love hearing people's reaction to to that. Is there, is there anything that jars you? Anything I didn't get quite right? Like we can edit this now. You're the writer. Uh, Every time I hear, you know, a list of things that I've done, I'm like, oh, who is that person that's done those things? Because it's certainly not me. And then I'm like, wait a second, the lack of sleep, the bags under, yeah, okay, that is. I have done those things. <laughs> oh, man. I, what is, how, how do you think about yourself? Like, as far as labels go, and I ask this because I've had, so I've had Dennis Heaton in here where we talked about you owing him money. We just made up this whole thing. <laughs> uh, and we had Simon in here, and um, we have an episode that hasn't aired yet with Karen Lamb. And all three of those describe, like, push that they, like, avoided calling themselves, like, writers for a really long time. So like, what is your relationship with that particular label? I would say that it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) That's a Facebook status. I know, I know, know. maybe that's fitting. Um, I think like writers so often feel like they have to earn that word, Mm. you know, and that there are different ways to earn that word. And some people think that you have to be produced and some people think that you just have to put pen to paper or 
fingers to keyboard or whatever, and other people think that it's a state of being. And I would say I vacillate in and out of all three of those yeah. uh, definitions. So I feel confident calling myself a writer now because it's literally all I do most of the time. It's yeah. just sit there and write. But uh, qu- the quality of that, I, I think I'm still you know, coming to terms with what kind of a writer am I and am I a good writer or am I just a writer who's, you know, messy and complicated? And I think I'm okay with either. Man, imposter syndrome for writers <laughs> is real. I don't hear that as much from from a lot of the other talented artists who come through the studio. Like it's, but writers, it just seems, and I guess I get it. I like, mean, we spend most of our career getting feedback from other people. So, and and other people just don't like. If you're a director, you come in, you do get feedback, but not to the same. Like, if you're on a show for ten months, you spend ten months getting feedback from yeah. producers, from networks, from actors, from viewers. So your whole life is being told, "Oh, this didn't work for me." You know, you get told good things too, absolutely, but you know, you you really have to become comfortable with feedback. So I used to look at it as imposter syndrome, and now I look at it as a just a quest to improve which I don't want to lose yeah I don't know if I want you to improve that much I'm pretty happy (laughs) with what you're doing (laughs) okay I want to I mean as you know staple of the show we go back in time there is we we bring up what is your time travel vehicle of choice TARDIS, uh, DeLorean, H.G. Wells' time machine, the phone booth from Bill and Ted. I, I'm, I'm DeLorean. Yeah. 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 That's a lot of people. With the dog, though. Like, I oh. the dog in there. Einstein's got to be. Yeah. Me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Not Doc, but yes, Einstein. The dog. Yeah. Love yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it. So, so we're in the DeLorean, and we're going to go back in time to your childhood. I think we're going to Alberta. Mm-hmm. Alberta, actually, that's been coming up a lot recently. Yeah. A lot of really creative people oh, yeah. from Alberta. What is, what is Alberta, it about? I think they, we fled Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> but there's got to be something that happens in Alberta, you know, that makes people so creative. And like, so, okay, so we're getting in there. I'm stuck on the number eight right now because I have an eight-year-old, hmm. an eight-year-old who has set the alarm off twice this week by slamming the door in the morning because oh. I asked her to brush her hair. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to meet eight-year-old Rachel. What kind of a kid were you? Um, weird, definitely. Nice. Okay. Um, I was telling a story to uh, my showrunner um, that when I was eight years old, I asked my mom, what if... I think totally differently than other people and I will never know that because I can't be inside someone else's brain so my brain is broken and I wouldn't know so how would I know how to fix it and she looked at me and was like uh uh wow (laughs) I mean on one hand yeah that is weird but on the other hand that indicates I mean, profound thought and questioning and, wow, I think I might be getting obsessed with your brain the way that I am with Dennis (laughs) Heaton's brain because that is a... If you can be an existentialist at eight, then I feel like your life is going to be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you want to to be when when you grew up then? I didn't know then. Honestly, I would tell you whatever the mood of the day was because I didn't know Um, but I was writing stories already I remember writing a perspective a a short one page story on um, Little Red Riding Hood from the perspective of the wolf who was actually just misunderstood and my aunt who's an English professor was using it in her university course until she (laughs) retired and I was always like can you stop using that it's so embarrassing (laughs) Um, but you know it was there What I find about that, though, is incredible because both of those anecdotes are about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like I would, I would assume that that is key to crafting story and crafting characters. Absolutely, I think that's why it's so hard because you spend so much of your time in your head trying to get into someone else's head, and then you know dealing with their pain or or their joy or their trauma, and it's. It's weird how much of that comes from yourself and how much of that is is imagined. I don't know where that line is. Yeah. What were some of the um the like what did you watch on TV? What did you, what movies did you watch? Like what did you Okay, and this is like I'm I'm a sp- 
pull back the curtain or whatever, but like I, like Rachel and I, uh, after our first interview, we went to Stormcrow on Commercial Drive, which is this like geek tavern. And um, like she was, we were both clearly in our happy place. So I do know that you have nerd in you. Definitely. The nerd is strong <laughs> with the Rachel. Nerd, nerd you know, so strong. what did you nerd out about when you were, when you were a kid? I grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation, but I will also say I was a pastor's kid. So like that was about the level of, uh, I am a pastor's kid. That was yeah. about the level of of PG-ness that we were allowed at the time. Yeah. So I didn't start my movie or film or even really my television education unless it was sneakily in the basement until I met my partner, Derek, who I met when I was 17. And then we just, we went, we went deep dive and watched everything. Wow. Yeah. So I grew up in the, you know, the Disney world. Yeah. Um, I did watch Indiana Jones, so that solidified a few things. Yeah. But Star Trek and Disney were kind of my, wow. my jam. Pastor's kid. Yeah. Um, and I'm bringing all sorts of, you know, biases and assumptions to this. But how did your how how did your family feel about the kind of questioning that you were doing then? You know, considering like one part of faith is I wouldn't say not questioning. But it's like accepting uh, a, a certain story. There's my biases coming no, in. <laughs> no, it's true though, and I mean, I, I'm really lucky. My dad is a deep thinker. He's got a master's degree, and and both him and my mom were always very open to that kind of questioning. Yeah. So I remember saying to him, like, "What if I just doubt all of this?" And he's like, "Good, you should doubt it, and you should question it because you won't know what you believe unless it's my you." My favorite ask kind of religious. Person. Yeah, yeah. So he's amazing, you know. Okay, um, cool. So I was lucky there. Yeah, and. Uh, what about creativity? Like what kind of, um, like are you from creative, artistic people? Yeah, my dad's a bass player. His That's creative and artistic, yeah. yeah. His music's played on CBC <laughs> and he's in a jazz band. And so I grew up playing the piano and drawing and, you know, that was always accepted. So it's, Aww. yeah. It's I wish I'd moment. known you. <laughs> you know, because what you're describing, you're kind of describing a lot of my childhood interests. I mean, without the pastor's kid, I'm the... An accountant's kid, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and that is like no questioning there. Uh, but, you know, like it's I, I personally felt very islanded, like be, beyond the support of my mom, who was super supportive of my my nerdy pursuits. Like I just was kind of like alone. You know, in the sea of like totally who I thought were not weird people at all. You know, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I I think the support generally ended at my parents because the friend side of it was not there yeah. um, so definitely there was a lot of that and a lot of feeling like oh I think I'm the only one who thinks about this or feels this way that's my age yeah um, so yeah I mean you know it's challenging in all the ways that it's always challenging <laughs> yeah I mean it, and it is it's challenging growing up is challenging and then when you're like when you feel a little bit out of step it can mm -hmm. feel more challenging okay we're getting back in the way back machine I don't know where Einstein went. <laughs> He's really happy here. But I want to go to you're standing on the precipice of adulthood. Okay, so I'm assuming you brought up 17, let's say 17. <laughs> so you meet you meet dashing and super smart and creative and interesting and fellow weird guy, Derek <laughs> Langer. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, what were you articulating that you wanted to pursue? You know, I can't believe we asked seventeen-year-olds to make these vast, these big statements. It's crazy. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I decided at eighteen to be a jazz musician, um, and so I went after I graduated, went into um, jazz school to do piano. Yeah, and I lasted six months because um, the performing part of that was never so great for me. Yeah, um, I love the music part, but like they, it was part of it to perform and to perfect, and I just couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I failed miserably at that, and then was adrift for a while until kind of found my way back to writing. Yeah, that's very vague. How do you find your your adrift and then I mean it's a b beautiful words Rachel but how does that happen because it's not like you're drifting and then all of a sudden you're in a writer's room you know That's like I, I'm moored here now I will write like how does how did that happen I mean it ha it happened because of Derek who who knew that he wanted to be in film and TV and decided to pursue that and so we moved to Vancouver and he went to film school and I was like well that's super cool and I also want to work with this guy and you know do everything with him for the rest of my life so I want to do that too so he went and then I went and then you know he just he relentlessly championed my 
desire to pursue every writing goal and and you know supported me when I wanted to go to Toronto for six months to go to the film center and was like yep you should do that let's make it work yeah so yeah I mean I I not diminishing my drive um in that but I don't think I would have done it without his support I mean look I I I am a feminist I I am a feminist I I feel like romance and love and partnership can be part of of that, you know, Absolutely. and and when you have a partner, you know, of of any gender, you know, it 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 but you have somebody who recognizes something in you and pulls it out if you like that's the best kind of partnership, you know, like Absolutely. like they can be the foundation. I don't think that there's anything like that diminishes your worth or is anti-feminist about like celebrating that you know because totally life's agree. fucking hard anyways it's you know? hard and I mean I think we lose sight we think oh we have to champion ourselves as the only drivers of our success but that's just not my story it's not true yeah you know it was a team effort the whole way and it continues to be so you know I'm really excited about that yeah uh, in those those um early days weeks months of years of your career what were the kind of stories and characters that that were emerging from you or that you were interested in telling? I joke that I don't know how to write anything but an identity story. It's what I've been writing since I started writing and it will probably be what I write until the day I die. And there's a different kind of identity story to write, but I've never not written something about somebody who's examining themselves and trying to figure out who they are. Yeah. And I, I write a lot, I write a lot about death. Um, not, not in, only morbid ways sometimes in fun morbid ways but also in ways where we just don't like to talk about that in our society we don't like to examine what it means to grieve and and I just am fascinated by that I feel like it needs to be more open I feel like we need to discuss that so I'm always writing about loss and and death whether it's in the background or or in the foreground yeah it's. I think it's, what we see on screen is really important, right? You know, and so if we're I, we if we're not comfortable having these conversations, at least we can watch it unfold. Yeah. yeah. Can you give me an example of you know? Actually, while you're saying like I've never not you know written about identity, I'm like, okay, yep, yep, I saw that on the order. Oh, Ghost Wars, Jesus, that was the whole thing. But like, what are some exa- examples of you bringing that into you know, especially about death and identity into your work? Um, I I like to kind of start out with a character I have to start out with a character over plot so it's almost always about figuring out where this person starts um so like one of the characters that I've written about her um she's a she's a shape-shifting stripper Mm -hmm. um and so she just innately as a shape-shifter can be anybody she wants to be so the show is about who is she and what side of the line the moral line is she going to stand on and of course she's dealing with some kind of loss in her life and you know so I that's on the genre side and then you know on the character side it's always just about people who are like okay this thing happened what how does that affect me who am I now you know a couple that's gone through you know challenging relationship or or a person that's lost something and says how is this going to affect me how am I going to move forward through my life with this thing now that's made me different yeah wow okay I just, I, I like, honestly, I, I almost, like, I don't want you to say anything else about the kind of stuff you want to write, because I just want to see it, like, play out on screen. We'll just wait 10 years. It'll have something yeah. on screen. <laughs> <laughs> T- tell me about, um, about your first writer's rooms and, like, some of the people that you met early on and what you learned and the ways that you fucked up, because I love mistakes. <laughs> oh, man. That, how long do you have? Um... My very first writer's room was Continuum uh, with Simon. Um, Whoa! And this is a funny story that I think Dennis and Simon will always laugh when I tell it. But I had been trying to get a job on Motive, which was Dennis's show. And I I mean, I knew him. He'd been relentlessly, you know, available to sit down for coffee and and be a guide. And he was fantastic. I'm like, I got to work for this guy. So I did everything I could to, to get into that writer's room. But the budget for the position... Um, that they had just closed down or I don't I think that's what happened but the position wasn't available like right at the last second and I got the email and I bawled for like four hours and laid on the floor and then I was like this is stupid I can't lay here and do this so I emailed Simon who was the only other showrunner in Vancouver that I knew personally from uh, doing an interview with him 
And I just said, look, I need a chance to prove that I can do this in a writer's room. I'll make coffee. I'll get lunches. I'll do whatever you need me to do. I just I just need to be vetted and, and be in there. And he wrote me back and said, great, can you start in three days? And I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, Let me check my schedule. Yeah, no problem. So I quit my job wow. and uh, was the intern on Continuum. And while I was in that room, got accepted into the Canadian Film Center and was like, do I stay? Because I have a job here that it took me forever to get. Do I go? I don't know what to do. And I said, Simon, what do I do? He's like, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. But whatever you decide to do, we support, which is rare and amazing so um yeah so the, my first day on continuum I said nothing and my second day I said nothing and for two more weeks I said absolutely nothing I took 30 pages of notes a day and finally I was like I guess I gotta say something <laughs> <laughs> but what were you watching then that you were taking notes um, wait is this a writer's room thing you can tell me what's in a writer's room yeah. yes are you ready <laughs> yeah I'm ready <laughs> so there were like nine people sitting around a table um you know, intermittently being distracted by whatever was on their computers or phones and then, you know, letting their brains reset and then paying attention again, which is what you have to do. That's very common. Yeah. And it was me. I, I wouldn't take notes like this again, but it was me recording everything everybody said and then trying to pare it down to what was landed on, which is yeah. Uh, always easy because what's landed on lasts for five minutes and then becomes something else. Mm. Um, and it's just a, it's a big discussion, especially at the beginning of a season because it's just broad strokes, big picture, blue sky, we call it, just, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall, seeing what works, and very little of that will make it into the show, but it just gets you where you need to go. Yeah. So it's just kind of like existing in that in that pool of ideas and yeah. trying to make sense of it. And I was, it was time travel. So I was cross-eyed the whole time. Cause yeah. I just can't, my brain can't understand time travel. So I was like, <laughs> that's what I love about time travel. I know. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I never, I'm like, there's more than one theory. I was very novice time travel. So yeah. Derek, I come home every night and be like, what's a two branch theory. He's like, okay, let's talk. So. That must be like one of the exciting things though, about, about being a writer, about being in a writer's room is just all the all the stuff you get to learn and that you get to like, like, I'm I'm thinking also about something like The Order, where I mean, I can I mean, I'm just thinking about the um, the the world building and then the stuff that's thrown out there. And I would even be like, is this a real thing? And like, I'd go on Google while I'm watching like, it is a real thing. (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, like it's so but I'm assuming like you don't sit down with that knowledge base. You're sitting there and then you're looking. Is that what it's like? It is. And I mean, we you learn a little bit about a lot of things. Yeah. Because you just don't have the the time to become an expert. So, you know, if you're lucky of a researcher, if you're not, you become very versed in how to word your Google searches to get the results that you want. Um, Oh, my God. (laughs) Tell me about some of your Google searches. What Um, are like some of the most like the stuff that you had to to Google for? I don't even know. I mean, every show is so different, right? Like. Like, what kind of tool would it take to cut through skin after it's been rotting for four days is probably one of my weirdest. Yeah. That's, I credit that. Did the Dennis. RCMP show up after? <laughs> I'm sure I'm on multiple <laughs> lists, but, you know. I did. And what kind of tool was that? Um I can't rem- I can't remember, but I think I was I think I settled on an exacto knife. I can't remember, but you know, I the Dennis Dennis inspires the weirdest Google searches, definitely. Yeah. Although some of the medical ones on transplant have also been pretty weird. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, we're kind of jumping around here, but <laughs> you've listened to the show. It happens. What is transplant? Um, so it's a show about a Syrian refugee who now is in Canada. He was a um, frontline. Uh, doctor, trauma surgeon, and he comes to Canada to create a new life for him and his sister. Um, And so he starts as a doctor here. Um, And it's just about, like, you know, immersing yourself in the culture of ER in Canada versus, you know, working on the front lines in Syria. Whoa. Yeah. So so what are some of the things then that you had to get some knowledge of in order to write for this show. I mean, we were really fortunate because we had multiple Syrian consultants who who came in and talked to us about their experience and were really open with us and and really supportive of the work we were doing. So we spent time, you know, talking to them. We talked to multiple ER doctors and have learned 
way too much about what kind of diseases and things can happen, which for a bunch of hypochondriac writers is maybe not the <laughs> best thing. Um, but yeah, you learn you learn a, a lot about a lot. Really yeah. Quick. What are some of the challenges that that Syrian I mean, so Sy- Syrian medical professionals face when they when they come over here as refugees? I mean, first off, just being legitimized in Canada. There's like you know all kinds of red tape that you have to go through um and and your license has to be valid here and getting paperwork from universities when the state has shut down shut their doors to any kind of you know paperwork is challenging um prejudice from people about whether you've had the right kind of experience is challenging you know and then just like there you know there are a lot of the same issues there are a lot of different issues so medically so you know just kind of understanding how something would work here in Canada versus you know something you'd seen in in a in a different culture in a different economic state and in a different state of civil unrest you know wow okay I can't wait to watch that (laughs) as well um I mean it's amazing to me too so I'm looking at this list and so there is like family drama um historical thriller drama uh supernatural magic realism and then like however you category categorize ghost wars which is just like <laughs> i don't know it's like everything i love it i mean you know i love it i put that in the bad shit <laughs> bad shit crazy but like come on there's got to be a genre that you really love you really love to write for and that you love above all else. The, I'd, I'm 50-50 split between YA um, uh, genre, like yeah. sci-fi, and um, something that's like a, like a half hour, you know, Barry type. The, I, I can't, I'm both. I can't pick okay. one. I'll never pick one. I'll never choose. They can never make <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you came kind of close. Yeah. I mean, two is more, better than you'd be like, no, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> is there something that you have, like a genre that you haven't written for yet that you yearn to write for? I mean, I've written, Derek and I have two half hour, um, cable half hours that we've written, that we love, um, that, you know, nobody in Canada wants to make because Canada is afraid of risk. Um, so, you know, I want to write for that genre. I love that. I think you get to do stuff in the, like, flea bags and berries and, yeah. and things that you would never get to do in an hour long because it's just, you know, it's just different format. Um, and I would... I would give my left nut, and I don't have any nuts, to be in the berry room. If you had one. Oh, it, I'd, I'd have shipped it to Bill Hader already. And, and then he'd be like, like, why is somebody sending this to me? I really creep. don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I love when somebody says something, and then I just leap on it, and I pull it out. You said Canada is afraid of risk. Tell me more about that, because I completely agree <laughs> And when we get to and when we get to see risk, it's very exciting, and that's why I'm so excited about shorts and about web series and and the work that's coming out of there because it's almost like they don't have to deal with yeah. a lot of red tape and you know. But like, tell me what you're talking about, Canada, afraid of risk. The nature of our system is that we nobody really wants to make um, television in Canada, and it's a shame. I understand why, because they can buy American series and global series and and air them here, and they're great. There's so much great content out there, and I get that. But um, because our system is partially government-funded, which I also am happy about on the Mm -hmm. other hand, um, there's a sort of like, how do we use this money to get the most out of it mentality? And it's a business model. I totally understand. That said, in order to make cutting-edge, frontline content that's interesting and innovative and tells our stories, you have to not be scared to try and fail. Right. And there are very few people in Canada who will say yes to that. And that's, you know, we have people who've tried to do that. We have producers, broadcasters who've tried to do that. But, you know, it goes up such a big chain, and ultimately it's a business, and the person at the top who's controlling the money says, well, that could be risky, and we don't do it. Um, so our experience pitching our half hour has been people hear our story. It's based on a personal story. And, and they say, oh, man, we love that. We love that story. That's so interesting. Nobody in Canada will buy it. 
and we say, okay, I mean, you didn't try to sell it. We get that. It's a risk for you too. It's a risk for us, but we're not afraid of it. And we're going to make it regardless because we have to tell the story. Yeah. But it's that tricky thing of a creator needing to tell their story um, and then having to try to convince somebody who doesn't have that same need to tell the story that they need to spend money on it. Yeah. So where does the disconnect there? Yeah. And then how do we affect change then is it are we just like waiting for a whole new generation of people to come in or or maybe like people come into the the decision making levels or just like start hiring a different kind of person to fill those those kind of roles it's interesting I mean Derek and I have always said you know people love to tell you what you can't do because they're afraid to do it and so when I came out of the film center in Toronto everyone was like you need to stay in Toronto you're not going to work if you move back to Vancouver and you're being an idiot by leaving and I was like well thank you for that Um, but also I'm not going to do that because that's your fear you know if I move back and I don't work well then I'll know but I'm never going to be afraid to try something because somebody told me I can't do it so if we have to be the ones making the content and you know putting our money into it and and putting it out there fine I don't care I'm going to do that I love it. <laughs> I love it. And I, I will tell you, listeners, she's wearing, um, I believe, her extra because she's wearing a T-shirt that has a black cat holding a bloody knife and says, what? So it's like you you believe everything that she's that she says and you want to, I, I rally behind uh, what you believe in. We're going to take a break um, because this episode is sponsored by Liquid Amber Tattoo and our collective, which is co-owned by one of our favorite humans, Olivia Peterson, who you've written for on a couple of different projects, right? I guess Continuum. Yeah. Yeah. And and then also Ghost Wars, where she played the most awesome, badass Mare Val. She and Derek are shooting a documentary together, actually. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. About the witches of Vancouver. That's right. That's so exciting. Okay. So when when we come back, um, we're going to talk about lady parts no we're not going to talk about lady parts but we're going to have a discussion about the impact that talking about endometriosis has had on rachel's career on this industry and on other people Uh, dudes if you stop listening now uh take take a take a look take a look inside yourself (laughs) seriously we need our allies all right (laughs) Let's take that break. Some people claim that Vancouver is a no-fun city, but anyone who says this has clearly not attended Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective's monthly art socials because these events are crazy fun and bring artists and art lovers together in one gorgeous space. Liquid Amber Tattoo is located in a stunning three-story brick building in historic Gastown. Since 2001, Liquid Amber's artists have been providing custom and cosmetic tattoos to satisfied Vancouverites and out-of-towners. The studio is health board approved, it's spotless, and the artists are consummate professionals. And there is always stellar artwork by local artists on the walls. Which brings us to Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective's signature event, The Art Social. On the last Friday of every month, Liquid Amber closes up early and the studio becomes an after-hours hive of creative energy. A vibrant, pulsating event space where artists show and sell their creations to art lovers and everyone is sipping wine and beer and having one hell of a good time. And right now, Liquid Amber Tattoo is on the lookout for art that's been created by artists who work in the film industry or that's been inspired by the film industry in some way. Is that you? Learn how you can submit your work to the 2020 Showcase and be part of future art socials on the Liquid Amber website. Liquid Amber Tattoo and Art Collective is located at 62 Powell Street in Vancouver. For more information about the studio and the monthly art socials and to submit to the 2020 Film Art Showcase, visit liquidambertattoo.com. That's liquidambertattoo.com. As I said, we've spoken quite a few times about your journey uh, with endometriosis. And I think, you know, what's amazing about when you talk about your career origin story and and about, you know, the choices that you're making and, and the writer's rooms and all of these things, you know, at this, like what we didn't we didn't acknowledge is that you were in incredible pain, you know, during all of that, you know, and so, and you are making your career choices and studying and writing. Um, And then at a certain point, uh, 
you you shared your story. So I guess the first thing I want to say, cause, and you shared your story in this it's this article that it's it, I mean it went viral. You know, so why did you write that article in the first place? I got to a point where you know the endometriosis was affecting my life on the daily, and you know hiding that takes a lot of time and energy but also I just kind of thought well this is a part of who I am yeah um and I I waited I will say I waited until I felt like I was gonna get hired even if people had concerns about my health because it is a it is a risk to talk about a health uh problem at the beginning of your career I wish it wasn't but Mm -hmm. it is and so I sort of waited till I felt like I had enough people in my corner that they had seen the track record that it wasn't gonna affect my work in a in a negative way um but that I could, I wanted to work around it. Yeah. Um, so then I just kind of thought I can't not talk about this anymore. My experience has been so, you know, brushed aside by so many people that if I don't say something, then I'm not ever gonna see a hope of that getting better for myself or for other people. So it just kind of came to a, a point where I couldn't stop. Yeah. And how long did it like? Was it one of these things where you? You storyboarded the article and and then you, you, you plotted it out and you wrote it over many weeks or did you sit down and like write it and submit it in one go? Tell me about that process. I wrote it in a morning and it all just came out and then I said to Derek, you have to read this because I think I'm going to be doing something really crazy in about an hour. And he was like, okay. So he read it, helped me kind of figure out if there were parts that were a little too raw or, you know, weren't clear. Um, we edited it down. I think I waited maybe a day, yeah. uh, maybe, if if that. And then I just said, it's going up. And we put it up, and that was it. And that was it. And it went viral, and you heard from a lot of people. And I'm assuming that there were people that you worked with who had had, had no idea that this was something that you dealt with. What did you hear from them those first few days? Um, I, a lot of support, you know. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people who are uncomfortable but, like, also supportive, which I think is great. You should be able to be imperfectly supportive. We're afraid to support people and make mistakes, but, you know, it doesn't matter. Just make the mistake and try to come out and support someone. It's fine. It's better. Yeah. So I got a lot of messy support, which I really appreciated. And Oh, um, messy. I, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of my specialty. Is my, Like, I don't know what to say, but I love you and yes. I'm here for you. Like, that kind of, that's exactly. my thing. Yeah. Exactly. And it's great. That's all you need to hear is I, I see you, I acknowledge who you are and what's going on in your life. Um, I I had told probably some of the, I told Joe, who's the transplant showrunner who I was working with on This Life, uh, for a story purpose, and he, uh, it took me forever, and he looked at me and was like, oh yeah, my sister-in-law has that, or somebody he knew, I'm not sure, and it sucks, and let's put it in the show. Mm. And and he was like, also, I can't believe you've been dealing with that and didn't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I felt very lucky to get that kind of support and also very nervous that you know, it was going to be lip service and that the actions wouldn't back it up. But yeah. that didn't end up being the case. Yeah. And um, I, I'm curious then about, you know, so it's been a few years since then. Have you noticed a change in how people interact with you about it? Has there been, I mean, because we're talking about there is a lot of cultural shifts happening right now, as specifically when it comes to to women, you know, to to non-binary people, to queer people, to like the, to and diversity and representation. I mean, there's there's pushback, and we're moving forward, you know, and that also comes to ableism and chronic illness and stuff. Have you noticed a change in in both in how you feel talking about it in the workplace, and also in what you encounter? when it when it is noted in the workplace yeah i mean i think people know that they can't say oh yeah you and your lady parts again jesus i don't want to hear about this they can't say that anymore which is good um but also like some of the wait hold on a second people actually say that to you i I mean not i haven't had that in the workplace although it's it's more of an attitude where you kind of you get the lean back the okay here we are again you know and people have to be more cognizant of that kind of behavior Mm -hmm. but also in the tangible actions like my producer on transplant it was like, you know, I was sitting on the floor in every single meeting and she was like, well, do you want me to order you a beanbag chair? And I was like, I mean, yeah, but she's like, great, it'll be here in two days. And then, you know, Joe got so used to me sitting on the floor, but other people would be like, Joe, get her a chair. What's the matter with you? And he'd be like, she's a floor sitter. Don't worry about it. Just move on. You know, and it was just like so nice having people kind of come to 
rally around instead of me holding the line all the time. Yeah. So that's been great. Wow. Um, what about on TV and like bringing it to the screen? Do you have the opportunity? I mean, you mentioned this life. Um Beyond that, have you had the chance to? Is that something that you call upon when you're you're like, yeah, yeah Sabrina? I mean, to about like trauma and like all sorts of stuff, like some work. Come on, <laughs> no, but is it is it something that that you you feel confident bringing into your work more and more? So, in what ways does it manifest? Yes and no. I mean, I I try to put some version of Lady Park chat in every single show on the order. I made two of the um, werewolves chat about it. Uh, under the guise of med school talk. Yes, you um, did. Yes, and I was like, that's I was Rachel. Like, I fought for that scene, you know, to stay in, and everybody was like, "We don't dare take this out. Rachel will murder us." I'm like, "Yeah, that's right." Um, but wow, I love that you command that kind well, of respect now. I don't know. I mean, I think they say it, and then they're like, "But we should really cut this." I'm like, "Oh no!" But I, I think I'm the same <laughs> way. It's a very personal thing, and unless you've experienced chronic illness or chronic pain or live with someone who has. You don't understand it. And so sometimes the notes you get back on stories that you try to bring are challenging. Mm. So to kind of say, look, this is subjective as all writing is. This is my experience. It's the one I know how to write. Yeah. Um, and then trying to fit that into what the show needs, what the story needs, what the size of the story that you can fit in the episode is, is challenging. Um, and so there are times where I've said yeah we're gonna do this and there are times where I'm like I'll never ever ever write about this ever again because it's too painful for me to hear other people talk about my story like they know what Mm. it is and I get that that's their job but it's really hard I get sensitive about it because I'm like you're basically telling me my story doesn't matter when you give me a note like that Um, and it's never intended that way but that's just the way that I take it so I've had to do Mm. a lot of like girding my loins so to speak about if I'm gonna write about it all the girding (laughs) that we much do as women now I'm I'm totally making this assumption here but are you mostly getting that note from dudes no no that makes me angry I mean I I have to you know be clear that I understand why television is a business and the show can hold what it can hold so what I want to put in there will not always fit because if I had my way it would take over everything um and so part of that's on me to not be precious about it. In the same way, there are times where I'm like, you just need to, when you're asking someone to bring a personal story, which you are, you need to be really aware of the way that you're talking to them about it. Mm. So, you know, I'm not asking for you to sugarcoat your notes. Don't ever do that. I want to make it better. But, you know, consider the source, where it's coming from, and the fact that it takes a lot for people to share that stuff. So it's it's got to be a two-way street. Yeah, that makes me think about what Dennis was talking about, uh, his responsibility as uh, as the showrunner, you know, and, and keeping that um, and, and making it a welcoming place. Yes. And that it is like a, yes, it's like an evening at the improv, but it's also a confessional and you have to treat it, treat it uh, as such. Yeah. Um, when do you feel the most empowered and engaged and invested in the work um when it's over (laughs) (laughs) always when it's over oh that's just such a writer thing to say (laughs) it's true but it's because it's so hard when you're doing it and it should be hard you know what does over mean like in in especially in like a a writer's room are you talking about that a, a project is over is it that a script is over a season is over it's gone to camera like what is when is it over there's like there's like mini overs during the whole journey you know yeah finish an outline and you know that you cracked something that you were having a hard time cracking and you send it in you're like oh it's over this is so great I feel so good about this and then you're like all right I'm gonna get notes in three days (laughs) okay it's gonna happen again but that's the cyclical nature of it is in it's important you know um but I think like there's a real sweet spot when you have finished a project it's all shot it's either like this is before it airs because as soon as it airs you're like oh, oh, oh. yeah <laughs> um, so scary but there's a sweet spot when you finish it and it hasn't aired so you haven't heard any feedback yet but you know you did it you yeah. know that that moment is really really gratifying how does feedback uh change how you relate to the work like is feedback a positive or a negative it's always both and it should be um and i 
Joe taught me really early on to welcome the feedback, and I try to not great at doing that sometimes, but I try to really just say, he said, he says the work can always get better. It can always get better and it won't be the best version even when it's shot because that's just not possible. Yeah. And I believe that. But sometimes so, feedback is dumb. It And I mean, sometimes. <laughs> like I was just thinking about like the orders uh, season finale, which was such a great finale because hello, it opened the way for season two. Come on. You don't want everything tied up in a little bow. You know, I know some other projects that that you've worked on that, you know, people are, were like mad about for all various reasons. <laughs> they, we don't have to mention those. But like it's, you know, like what, what do you have? Like does that like when the feedback is stupid? You don't have to call it stupid feedback. I'll call it stupid feedback. But like, what, like, d- do you dismiss it? Does it have an impact on you? You have to exist in two states at all times. You have. That's to so be, exhausting. It's Rachel. exhausting. It is, it, this is why writers are like, when it's over. I feel good. But you know, I mean, you have to be confident enough to know that you made the choices you wanted to make, and that you guided the work, and that you are you know sure that what you did was the way you wanted to go even if it was the wrong way you have to stand behind it yeah but you also have to accept feedback as you know a person's subjective opinion on what they experienced and for me to tell them that they're wrong that's not going to get us anywhere I mean that's how they experienced it it maybe the way they experienced it was stupid but (laughs) it's true for them you know so feedback is always a you have to be two things. You have to be confident in the work and open to changing it. Yeah. Okay. That is a very um, diplomatic response. <laughs> and I'm comfortable saying that sometimes viewers' feedback is stupid. This is so. why I have to wear the shirt so I can <laughs> yes! say the diplomatic words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a murderous cat. Yeah. There's literally blood dripping from the knife on yeah. on your on your shirt. Do you have um what the fuck this is actually my life moments if so like when okay you're nodding yeah so when does that ha- when do those moments happen for you um Derek and I were just in Edmonton screening a short film that we did in yes. the Edmonton Film Festival and so this is our second year screening a film there and we are sitting there in this theater in downtown Edmonton where we grew up not in downtown but in the city where we grew up watching our work displayed beside all these other short films that are like interesting and and intense and cool and really well made and we're just like how did we get here what are we doing and then you know every time that we pull out our cameras that we bought or every time I you know see my name on the screen which I almost never do because I almost never watch what what we make yeah I'm just like whoa this is a real thing but they're fleeting thankfully because I don't ever want to live in that space for too long yeah Wow. I well I hope that one day you will be able to to sit in the knowledge that you are a damn good writer <laughs> and just you. own that. Like somebody literally bring her a shirt with like a happy cat on it that's like I'm a writer. Um okay, we're gonna do some time travel again. Okay. Because you know, I like to like I begin and end with some time travel. So uh if you could go back in time to seventeen year old Rachel you just made a little face uh and give yourself some advice what would it be or would you not give yourself any advice at all because that is an option too i think that i would just say don't be afraid to fuck up because Mm. if you don't you're not learning anything and and i was so afraid to, to mess up and it held me back more times than I can count and it holds you back in the work so yeah. like make the mistakes make it messy make it crazy mess it up it can get fixed later yeah I wonder how you responded to that like if you would have been like wait what, I don't want to fuck up tell me how I'm gonna fuck up I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I would have said wait we say the f word <laughs> that's what I would have said um Music, though, like what what kind of what kind of role does that have in your life now? And does it does it impact the work at all? It does. I'm I'm an avid music listener when I write. Yeah. Um, there's a, a shared playlist uh, that we have on Transplant that I listen to a lot. But also I get in a space where I can only listen to one song because it yeah. holds the emotion of the scene. Mm. So and I can't let go of the song until I crack the scene which means I think my I think my record count is 255 plays on a song until I could crack this okay what song was that (laughs) I can't tell you (laughs) 
<laughs> and these are songs that have words? Yeah, most of the time. I A lot of writers don't like listening to songs with words. Yeah, but. I can't when I'm, even when I'm like writing my, my articles for The Courier, I can't. I can't listen to because then I just then I want to sing and I'm thinking about the but I do like I like to listen for often it's like the Lord of the Rings soundtrack mm-hmm. like because I feel like epic <laughs> I, I, and you're not alone in that I think I'm an anomaly I need the words because they usually represent some kind of headspace that I need to be in and I just am like okay these are the words these are the words that are gonna I can't believe you don't tell us <laughs> no I can't tell you why not um it's I, I just... it's Spice Girls look I love the Spice Girls too Backstreet Boys it's okay 90, 90s you know uh, well, this season, this season, it was the new uh, Bonnie Vera album, Front to Back. And okay. Specifically, there's one song I don't know how to say it. I think it's Naim, but also Shallow. I listened to Shallow. I think 300 <laughs> times one day on the set of Transplant. And that's okay. Yeah. Ah, that is that's. Don't be ashamed. <laughs> There's a reason that, I mean, it's iconic at this point. It really is. (laughs) This has been absolutely delightful. Thanks for having me. This has been great. I love this. Was it scary? No. It was was good, right? It was awesome. Okay, good. Yeah. So tell everybody I'm not scary. I will tell them. (laughs) Okay, thanks. So, okay, Rachel, where can our listeners find you on the social media? Are you still doing doing social media right now? Um, I have a tenuous relationship with it yeah as I was asking like wait I always ask people but I you like broke up with Twitter for a bit I have a Twitter account that I you know it exists I haven't used it in a really other than a few retweets in about five months and I'm not sure that I'll go back to it I'm not sure yet Um, I'm leaving the door open but Instagram you can find me at geek chic which is g-e-e-k-c-h-i-q yes you know, it's sporadic. <laughs> okay. But if people want to send you their feedback, yes. <laughs> that's where they can send it. Or or just don't. <laughs> Honestly, that is an option too. But if they want to send like, you know, a awesome. I'll take all the love. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Okay. Things we've learned in this podcast uh, or that I've learned during this podcast. Don't do Don't send dick pics <laughs> and don't send negativity. Yeah. Like, honestly, it doesn't... Uh, and also, if there's an actor who plays a character you don't like, you don't have to yell at that actor. No. It's so fucking ridiculous. Yeah. D- do you want to get one last swear in there to uh, honor your, like, <laughs> eight-year-old self, 17-year-old self? Yeah, just go fuck up, Rachel. Just do it. <laughs> Life is messy, and it's great. All right, well, to you, our listeners, we say thank you. Please, if you haven't... L- Please like us and subscribe. Leave us a review if you are so inclined. Those help us reach even more listeners and grow this whole thing into one big amorphous blob of awesome. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenscene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Firminger. Edited and produced by Simon Firminger. We give special thanks to Tyson Braddock and Paul Firminger for technical support. I can't speak right now. It was because I said amorphous blob into this arm thing and then like it's just gone. We also thank Dane Develay for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And... And cut!